discipleship ministry team of the ministry council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And we're going to be looking at the lectionary text for April the 7th. That's going to be the season of Lent. It's going to be week five in year C. But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know about an opportunity coming up that the ministry council is putting together. It's called the Symposium. It's Coming Together in Ministry, a new approach for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Join the ministry team for a three-day opportunity to come together to learn, share, and celebrate the work and life of the church through the denomination. And who's invited? It's Presbytery and church boards and ministry team members, pastors, clergy, and other church and lay leaders. It's going to be November the 7th through November the 9th, and it's going to be at the Brent Haven Church in Nashville, Tennessee. If you want more information on that, you can go to cpcmc.org and you'll find a banner that says Symposium. That'll lead you to all the information and a brochure that you can download and share with your church or your elders. We're looking for as many people who want to come and to learn about uh, the things that are going on in our church. And so that is available to you, and we encourage everyone to go. Now, then we go to our lectionary text. Our Old Testament passage is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 through 21, Psalm 126, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14, and John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Unifying themes this week. I've got four of them here. Uh, first, God's purposes will be accomplished. All right, second, God will honor God's children. Third, devotion and praise will come forth by God's redeemed and restored children. And fifth, there is no such thing as blind faith or blind worship. All this praise that we read about and worship we read about is based on the experience of God's blessings in the past and the experience uh, of God's blessings in the future. And I think the epistle passage this week could be the text that ties everything together. Uh, the gospel passage might if you work at it a little bit, but the epistle passage is a good, good place to give kind of a foundation for the rest of the text. So in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, like the passage last week, this passage deals with exile and the future hope of the Israelites. In verse 16, uh, the people are reminded of God's work and their redemption from Egypt. So God parted the waters for the Israelites, and he laid waste to the Egyptian chariots and horses. Now we fast forward a couple hundred years, and the uh, Israelites are exiled in Babylon. And God says, do not remember these former things. Behold, I'm going to do a new thing. So we have to think about this text a little bit. Do not remember the former things, either good or bad. Right? Right? Maybe remember the good because it becomes a foundation to build on, but it can't become nostalgia like it does in so many people and in so many churches. Paul picks up this theme in the epistle lesson when he says, look at my past. I had everything right, but I've given it up because something better is coming. It's the same here. God is doing a new and better thing. And we know from the past that we can trust God, but we can't hold on to the past, whether good or bad. It's difficult to do this, though. If you've ever tried to make a change in your life, you know it's difficult. If you try to change a church to what you believe God is leading you to do uh, because God is doing a new thing, it's close to impossible to do it without resistance from church members or even church leaders. It's simply tough to change. And Isaiah understands that, and he uses wild animals to say, look, look at the jackals. And, of course, jackals have always been portrayed as somewhat devious because of how they hunt. They have these premeditated plans. Uh, where they plot the destruction of their prey. And then he says, what about the ostrich, right? In times past, ostriches have been seen as a little on the dumb side because they stick their head in the sand. And I lost about 10 or 15 minutes of my life watching ostrich videos because they're amazing and fast. So when you get 
done listening to this, look up an ostrich video. But God is essentially saying even the most evil or the least intelligent person should be able to see this new thing that I'm about to do. And so God is going to give his blessing to his people. And because he blesses them, they'll, they'll praise and worship him. And this isn't lost on us because we as individuals have oftentimes felt in exile or in the desert. And that's what the Lenten theme is. We're facing our demons. Uh, we're in the wilderness and we're, we're trying to perceive the new thing that God is trying to do in our lives. Uh, but then if you have ears hear, if you have eyes see, don't be so dense. Even the wild animals, the wicked jackals and the dumb ostriches perceive what, what God is doing. So a way to preach this, uh, and I'm not good with subtitles or titles, but here's some points. First, God makes a way for God's people, right? So in the past, God displayed his power when the Israelites came forth through the waters of Egypt, and he laid the chariots and horses of the Egyptians to waste. And God will display his power again in a new way. We've already talked about it briefly. But think about even in Jesus' time, the Israelites leaned so heavily on the past they used words like, we're children of Abraham, or they talked about the reign of David and so on, and they couldn't see the Messiah in front of their face because they leaned so heavily on the past. Behold, God does a new thing. And then when God does work, his way is powerful and evident. So when God does this new thing with Israel or in the church or in our life, it is evident. We can see it. We can marvel at it. It's obvious to those who have ears and have eyes and whose hearts have not, have not been hardened. It's like an oasis in the desert. It's like refreshing water for the soul. When you're preaching this, you can connect it to your life, the life of the church, to the life of the community that your church resides, how a new thing is happening. You can tell a difference when God is making a new way. It's the difference between life and death, between water and the desert. And then uh, third, God does these things so that it produces worship to God. So when God works in a powerful way, it's not like getting a Christmas gift from Santa. It is given to us for the purpose that we might know the goodness and love of God in an ever-deepening way. Our response then is praise, right? It is the mighty singing and worship of a congregation that has been saved from death and has been given new life. And so that brings us to Psalm 126. This psalm is really an almost exact rendering of the Isaiah passage. If I were preaching this, I think what I would do is spend time visioning on what it would look like if your church was restored. I've been Cumberland Presbyterian long enough to know the common story of most of our churches. You talk to somebody and they'll say, well, back in the whatever decade, this was a thriving church. But over the years, we've just lost people. They died, they moved away, and so on. It's time for our churches to be restored. Spend time in the vision which God might give you. Verse 1 of the psalm says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I've been looking at the numbers in our yearbook, and we need some dreaming in our denomination. We need some visioning. And we can do some of that at a denominational level, but when it comes down to it, it's the pastors and the churches, the church leaders, that have to have the vision of God for the community that the church resides and God still gives dreams to pastors and to elders and to common church folk all around. The power of God resides in the local church. So spend time this week to dream. You don't have to study too much because the text explains it for you. But dream. Dream what God could be up to in you or your church. Pray for a dream so that when you stand up on Sunday, 
you can say, I have a dream, and you can mean it. And then articulate in the sermon what the dream looks like, what it means. Sell a vision of what God is calling your church to do. God has power, and he is ever willing to give that power to those uh, people in churches that seek God and God's purposes. So spend this Sunday sermon asking for uh, prayers from your people and for commitment to the church to give yourselves in service of doing this new thing that God is calling us to do. Ask the Lord to restore the fortunes of the church, not for the glory of the church or for the glory of ourselves, but for God's glory. And if you want to, you can pattern your sermon on the psalm. So the outline might look something like this. In verse 1, you recognize that God has blessed us in the past. So you think of a time in the church when there was a great service or ministry that was being performed, maybe a key time in the past when the church was at its greatest point. Describe to your people how the worship looked and how excited people were and how the community uh, was affected by the ministries of the church. Then you can move on to verse 2 and 3 and describe the reaction of the restored uh, Zion or the church. And so describe the worship from the church, as I've just said. What impact did it have on, did the church have on individuals and families that were in and out of the church? Describe those ministries that were accomplished in the community in the past. And then move on to verse 4, and then ask for commitment and prayers for the people. Share your vision for what God wants to do with you and the leaders and the lay people of the church. What does God want to see done in the community? You may be at a place in your ministry that you're just going through the motions. Because if you've been at a church long enough, that happens. My prayer is that this week, this uh, vision, if you commune with God, will set you afire again. And that's going to be my prayer for all the preachers and teachers this week. May God renew us and give us fire so that we can see the new thing that's happening uh, in, in this church, the denominational church. And then in, verse, or, and then in verses 4 and 6, you could describe what it looks like specifically in your setting what it means to sow in tears but reap shouts of joy, to go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, and then finally carrying in sheaves of fruitfulness. If you're a minister who works in the community, you've probably been broken over the state of some of the people that you've ministered to, maybe in your church as well. What would it look like if God transformed that alcoholic you ministered to into a productive citizen? Or maybe what would it feel like that passivity that has overtaken the church, which changed the urgency? What would the worships look like? What would the ministries look like? What would it feel like? Or what would worship be like if God began to do great things among our churches? Maybe when we see people join the church or confess their faith and they're received in the congregation through baptism, how would that change the whole feeling and dynamic of the church? All of this is part of the vision, but describe to your congregation what could be. And then the Philippians passage, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. Right? This is one of my favorite passages uh, for various reasons, but mostly because um, I feel it deep down in my soul. Right? I just feel it. Earlier, uh, I said that Paul illustrated the verse from Isaiah, Remember not the former things, for the things of old. That's the theme of this pericope of Scripture. Whether it's good or bad, we'll leave it behind and strain toward what is ahead. I was the pastor at a church for 12 years, and it was a fairly well-known church in the denomination. At one point, there was somewhere north of 800 people on its rolls, and it might have been in the 1950s or 60s. And by the time I got there, there was a desperate, in 2008, there was a desperate 30 souls still attending the church. 
I know they were desperate because they hired me, and that in and of itself shows some desperation. But the hardest part of my job was to kill nostalgia, just to kill it dead, kill the pride of the past, whether it was good or bad. It had to go because, behold, God was going to do a new thing. And chances are it's going to be a lot different than it was in the glory days. And Paul got onto something there that haunts Christians and churches still today. It's the past. Sometimes churches get caught up in the failures, the heartbreaks of, of churches splitting or ministries that went downhill. But then sometimes churches hang on to the glory of their past and they talk about all the good things that they've done. And all the while, they're in decline. It's hard for us. It's hard for us when we've done good things, right? Because God is calling us to strain towards something better and newer and higher. I love conversations like this when someone says, well, I'm done with that youth group. I was a good soldier. And when my kids were growing up, I was active, but I'm not anymore. I've done it. Uh, Somebody else is going to take over. In which, when I have this conversation, I always say, well, thank you for your service, and I mean it. But more often than not, that person who's saying that is not doing any other ministry anymore either. They're simply coming to church, giving their money, going home, not even serving on boards. They've somehow thought that their service in the past is is good enough, but it's not because God is calling us to strain toward what lies ahead. There's something new that God is doing. So don't sit on your laurels as a church or as a Christian. God is doing a new thing. But the flip side is true, too. I've ministered to enough people who simply can't get away from their past because they feel like they're failures. They can't uh, move on to be the, the, the person Christ wants them to be. But I've always said, if you can't let go of your past failures, then what was the purpose of the cross? And the way I've understood this, um, the Masters Golf Tournament is coming up, so here's a good illustration for you. I was pretty good in high school golf. Right, like uh, probably was a five or six handicap. Um, nonetheless, uh, one of my first tournaments that I uh, participated in, I was standing at the first tee box, and there were you know fifty, sixty people around watching everybody tee off. And man, I swung the club, and I think I whiffed the ball completely. It went up about twenty feet in the air and about ten yards in front of me, and. From that point on, I wasn't worth anything. I kept thinking of the embarrassment of people seeing me mess up and how awful I was, and that just became a record in my mind. So I muddled through holes one, two, and three, and then I came to hole four, and the hole was designed where it uh, paralleled the road uh, that led to the golf course, and my dad had driven his truck to that fourth hole so you could see people play through. And uh, I hit the ball, and I think I almost hit him. It was so bad, it hooked left. And uh, anyway, I just walked over, got in the truck, and said, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. And I quit, because in my mind, I couldn't overcome uh, that first bad shot. And so I quit and went on. And then, I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I remember reading this passage of Scripture after I'd become a Christian, and instantly, that... uh, that moment in my life came back to me. I knew exactly what Paul meant. Good or bad, just keep moving. You have to keep pressing on. You can't quit. You just got to keep pressing on. And thank goodness I've matured a little bit, but I can still get down when I mess something up. And sometimes me and Jesus have to have uh, little talks to keep me going. And then there's times where Jesus has to humble me because I think I've done so well and I I just kind of stop working. 
And so uh, what Paul's saying is you have to forget what lies behind, whether good or bad. You strain for what is ahead. And so here's an outline you can use for preaching this text. Uh, so in verses 1 through 8, you have to say the past is the past. It can be a foundation for things to come. You can look back on your past and you can say, thank you, Jesus, for all the good providence. Or you look back and say, man, uh, Jesus, I have been a complete wreck and I need help. And now, if I was going to preach this specifically to a church this week, I would actually talk about forgiveness. Because in our culture today, uh, it's forgiveness that holds us uh, back from living a full life in Christ. We're a people who find it hard to forgive. I mean, forgiving from the heart. We hold on to past hurts, and that bit ends up defining our futures. And then for me, at least, and I probably speak for a lot of people, is to allow the experience of forgiveness for myself. I'm pretty good at forgiving people. I can let things like water off a duck's back. But I can't seem to always get over the things that I've done, either failures in my personal or spiritual life, or things that I've done to others, whether knowingly or unknowingly. I think that's one of the reasons why I've fallen in love with the liturgical element known as the confession of sin and the declaration of pardon, and then the passing of the peace, is because I have to act it out and to internalize it, and I need to do it often. I know that I'm forgiven in my head, but man, I can get hung up uh, on thinking that I'm really forgiven. And so when the pastor calls for the corporate confession and then uh, the pastor says, People of God, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sin from us. May the peace of Christ be with you and pass the peace to your neighbor. That act becomes a must in my life because I have to be reassured and I have to act it out that I can go forward, that God loves me enough. And then second then, verses 9 through 11, the present then is about a relationship. All right, so when we weren't Christians, when we weren't in Christ, our relationship with God had to be based on our righteous or unrighteous acts. The point would be to earn a relationship with God based on our efforts. But in verse 9, we see we don't have to worry about righteousness anymore because we have a new righteousness. We're supposed to simply fall in love with Christ. And so hear me out, that doesn't mean that we become sinful all over again. But when we fall in love with Christ, we're transformed and we're patterned after his life. We do things that would please him. And we don't do it just so we can pat, a, pat our head and say, attaboy, but we delve deep into a relationship and fall in love with Jesus Christ, and we experience his love in deeper and greater, greater ways. Any of you who are married have probably come to completely understand this. I remember back when I was dating my wife, I remembered cleaning my car out perfectly. I wanted to go to the perfect restaurant for dinner. I didn't want to look wrinkled, so I wore my best clothes and ironed them. I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I spent too much money on dates. I used my best manners ever. And I remember thinking after dates, well, that went well, or that didn't go well. Okay, so I'm married now. And me and my wife know we don't have too much money, so we can't spend too much. We have children, so our cars are never clean. My wife doesn't like to iron clothes, and I don't either. But I do love to be with her. I don't let the formalities get in the way of a relationship with her anymore. I love knowing that she loves me and she's committed to me and out of her. And we don't perform anymore. We just see greater ways to express our love toward one another. And we fall deeper and deeper in love. We rarely ever think about formalities. She does not like my choice of shoes, though. I, I wear Crocs because they make my feet feel pretty good. And she does not like those at all. 
I have a pair of preaching Crocs and I have a pair of working Crocs and she doesn't like either, but she does love me. And then third in verses 12 through 14, the future is about our growth and relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Now, when you're preaching this, you can continue the marriage metaphor if you'd like, or you can talk about the process of sanctification and the goal of sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ and deepening your love of God through Christ. The important part to include in your sermon is that we're not done yet, right? We're not done working in this world. We strain forward. If we're still breathing, there's still more to explore. Again, this can be addressed to individuals, Christians, yourselves, or the church at large. It's your choice. But the future is about growth and the establishment of a deeper relationship with, with Christ. And that leads us then to the gospel. And this is an amazing story, right, of contrasting motives between um, Judas and Mary. So in this passage, we have another scene with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But this dinner is after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And so if you're preaching this text, you may want to go reread all the stories that concern these characters. And one thing you find out for sure, Mary gets it. She loves Jesus. Nothing is a chore for her. She doesn't get sidetracked by busyness. And nothing is too good for Jesus. Now then, one thing to take note of is the response of the Pharisees, right? This shouldn't be left out of any sermon. Sin will transform you into an awful person, even when you think you're doing good. It takes you down a path that you would never have thought you would go when sin finally reaches your heart and mind. That's the hardest part of sin. When you're committed to it, it owns you. I very seriously doubt any of these Pharisees had murder in their heart for anyone. But over the years of Jesus' ministry, their pride drove them deeper and deeper into evil. Not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they began to think of how they could kill Lazarus, who was completely innocent in all, all things concerning them. That's why Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold, because it just needs just a little bit to start. And then it's like the yeast of the Pharisees. It grows. So if I was going to preach this text, I would use an outline something like this. Number one, devotion spares no expense. Right? Mary gave all. She was completely abandoned to Jesus Christ. There was nothing she had in her life that she wouldn't willingly give up uh, for him to his glory and honor. The second thing is don't use good intentions as a way or an excuse for being evil. So take Judas as an example. He said this righteous thing, like we could have used that money to help people. Uh, but he was using uh, good intentions to be evil. You could bring in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and talk about what it means uh, to proclaim something as Corbin. There's some meat to be had there. Uh, and to develop ways that we use uh, good intentions to, to do evil things. And then third, there is a time and place for everything, right? Over the years, I've struggled with this text uh, because God does call us to care for the poor and the sick. and he does call us to give money, and sometimes you don't have both. You don't have enough to do both. But then I realized you don't have to hold one over the other. It's much the same as when Martha and Mary uh, were <clears throat> serving Jesus dinner, and Martha complains about working too much. Jesus says, hey, Mary, chose, Mary has chosen the better thing. And Jesus says something similar here. He says, look, the poor you're always going to have among you, but you won't always have a time like this with me. Right? So we can't use this verse as an excuse not to give to the poor. Uh, I've heard people say, well, we'll always have the poor among us, and that gives them an excuse not to give. Uh, 
but they're not given to the church either, so whatever. But there are times when God will call us to sell our possessions and give to the poor. And then there will be times when God says, be still and know that I'm God, right? There's a time for everything, and it's the development of our spirituality which will lead us into when we're supposed to give everything we have to God and when we're supposed to give our resources uh, for the work of God. And then fourth, finally, uh, beware of religious acts when you don't have a relationship with God, right? So that's verses 9 through 11. I already talked about this briefly, but this happens on an individual level when, let's say, for instance, you pontificate on Facebook about certain moral issues. Everyone who's reading it knows that you're not a living person. They know you're a jerk, and you're still proclaiming the moral high ground on some Facebook post. They really want to punch you. They're not going to because they're Christian people, but that's what they really want to do. And they think, this person has no love in their heart, but they have this moral high ground that they're proclaiming. But you could also go with examples of terrorism or the history of the church. Think about the Crusades. There have been many disgusting things done that have happened that have done in this world that have happened in the name of God by people who don't know God or have a relationship with God. That's when religion becomes really, really dangerous, is when you're acting it out, but you don't know the source of it. And so that's what I got for you this week. May the Lord bless you. And uh, again, my prayer is that we receive fire. All of us receive fire this week. So may the Lord bless you and keep you.